Welcome, everyone, to Season 1, Episode 6 of The Games People Play. Bernie Corbett back at our home court, and it is our home court today. We'll tell you about our guest in just a moment here at the Fours Restaurant and Sports Bar on Canal Street, right across from the TD Garden. And uh, once again, uh, if you're in the neighborhood, uh, please check out the Fours. You can't go wrong here. They've got the menu here at the Fours, also great takeout menu if you're in the area. And uh, they are still uh, the reigning champion, the number one restaurant and sports bar in America. And thank you to Peter Colton, the owner here, Jimmy Taggart, Gino, and all the rest of uh, the crew here at the Fours. Also, I uh, want to thank uh, our supporters. And, uh, of course, uh, we'd be remiss here on the games people play with Bernie Corbett if we did not mention Kelly Sports and Consulting, and uh, Kelly Sports and Consulting, Kirsten Kelly, our good friend. If you're looking for a pro athlete, former or current, for a personal appearance, for a sales presentation, trade show, or corporate appearance, you can get in touch with Kelly Sports and Consulting. They're the folks that can help you. You can give Kirsten a shout at 781-888-2791, or you can check her out on Facebook at Kelly Sports and Consulting. Thank you to Kirsten, who set us up with our first round ball guest here uh, back a couple of weeks ago. And uh, that's where we are again today. And we're going to be back on the court today in just a moment with our guest. Also, many thanks to Phil Castanetti and Phil Castanetti Sports World, New England's largest sports memorabilia shop since 1986 at 87 Broadway. That's Route 1 in Saugus. And uh, go by, tell Phil that... The games people play and Bernie Corbett sent you, and uh, he'll take care of you for all of your sports memorabilia needs. Well, uh, great to be back here at the Fours, and great to have our guest. Once again, we are uh, back on the court today, and uh, we have a true wizard of the court here today. Uh, he is a New England legend and beyond, and uh, we have with us uh, the incomparable Ernie DiGregorio today, and uh, we want to welcome uh, Ernie to the program. We got him off the links and uh, we got him on the phone to, uh, to talk about Ernie D. Gregorio here today. Welcome, Ernie. Thanks, Ernie. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, for those that uh, may not remember or those uh, of a, a certain younger age, uh, Ernie was All-American at Providence College 1973. And uh, it was a magic carpet ride of a, of a season for the Friars that year, all the way to the, froze, to the, to the final four in St. Louis, and uh, he was propelled in the NBA draft to the number three selection uh, by the Buffalo Braves, uh, where he spent uh, the early part of his career uh, before finishing up with the Los Angeles Lakers and then the Boston Celtics. And uh, we're going to uh, talk to Ernie. We're going to break it all down as we do here in the games people play and uh, go all the way back uh, to the beginning and his roots, which were not far from the Providence College campus. Uh, Ernie was a uh, hometown boy, and uh, he was a uh, proud uh, North Providence uh, resident, grew up there, and uh, had the opportunity to attend many schools, but uh, chose to stay close to home. And uh, Ernie, uh, really, just to begin at the beginning, uh, you fell in love with the game of basketball at a very early age. I, I know you said you, you played, from my research, a little bit of baseball, but uh, you quickly gravitated to basketball and uh, I don't think you were ever without a basketball in your hand and, and dribbling a ball uh, for uh, the next uh, subsequent decade or so before you even got to Providence College. 
Yeah, you know, my philosophy is pretty simple. I figured if I practice 10 hours a day and someone practiced two hours a day, and I did that seven days a week, you know, that's 70 hours compared to 14 hours, and you start multiplying by, that by months and years. So I don't really think there were many people that were playing more basketball than I did. But the great thing about it, Bernie, is it was fun. And when you're having fun doing something, uh, you know, it, does, it doesn't seem like work. And I loved every minute of it. So, uh, you know, I, I would suggest to anyone growing up, uh, whatever field they decide to go in, it's always nice to go into something that you really enjoy because it doesn't seem like work. And, and you uh, were on that path. Uh, I know that you were quoted at age 12. You knew you were going to be a pro player. You figured uh, you're going to put the time in and uh, you're going to get there. And, and you did. You, you were very focused and very driven from an early age. Yeah. And I was very confident. You know, when you practice uh, in the beginning, I couldn't hit a bucket, you know, two feet away from the hoop. But I kept practicing and practicing. And I'd make it from four feet, then I'd move out to six feet, then I'd shoot 10 feet, then I'd shoot 12 feet, 15, you know, build my way out. Today, with this three-point line, which I think really kills the game of basketball, all you do is see young kids try to shoot three-pointers, and they can't make a five-footer. So I was fortunate to come out when there was no three-point play. And it was pretty simple. Uh, the more you uh, practice the short shots, they made them. And you move back and you make the long ones after that. You played at uh, North Providence High School, Class B state champions, 1968. And that's where you really made a name for yourself uh, in the game, uh, all the way to the state championship game with a 37-point tour de force to win that state championship. But uh, there was always uh, maybe uh, a, a little bit of, I'd say, uh, doubts about you, Ernie. And uh, the fact that you played for the Class B championship, not the Class A championship, you dispelled the doubters at the high school level. And you did the same the next year when you had the opportunity to move on to play in the New England prep ranks at St. Thomas More. Yeah, you know, because I was short and I wasn't really fast, you know, uh, people really didn't think I was that good. And uh, so there was always questions, you know, I played in Class B and then, when I played for PC as a freshman, they didn't allow freshmen to play in the varsity. And, you know, I averaged 29 a game. And they said, you know, he's a good freshman player, but he'll never start at the varsity level. And then when I started when I was a sophomore, you know, I played in New York's Madison Square Garden my first time and had like 27 points and 14 assists. Then I think people started thinking, you know, this is the real deal. But even, you know, when I graduated college, um, my senior year, uh, the year before, when I was just going into my senior year, mom and Bonds, my teammate was a junior, he was selected to go uh, to the trials, the U.S. trials for the Olympic Games. And I think they selected like 62 players. And I wasn't even one of the 62 players selected. But I never let anything deter me because I did it different than most people. I never had anybody teach me, you know, how to shoot and dribble and pass. I did it by just dribbling a ball, you know, for hours and hours everywhere I went. And so when I got 
you know, my senior year and had a real good senior year and averaged 24 a game and made first team All-American and it was drafted third in the, uh, in the NBA draft, it just showed that all those experts who picked, you know, the 62 people that were selected to the Olympic Games, I wasn't even on their radar. So I, I think it's really important you know, for people to understand that people can't control your destiny, all you can. And so that's why I just kept, you know, believing in myself and uh, was able to play, you know, at the highest level. And, and to the highest level. Also, just a note, uh, you made a big impression when you did move on and have a chance to play prep basketball all the way to the New England Prep Championship. And uh, you ran into a guy named John Thompson and John Thompson's St. Andrews team. So, uh, one of uh, your first uh, brushes with the uh, elite of basketball, uh, the fact that you competed and defeated a John Thompson team. Yeah, John became a real good friend of mine. Uh, <clears throat> he coached St. Anthony's in D.C., and they had really some big players. And uh, We went down and played in the Snipes at Columbus tournament when I was at St. Thomas More. We won the New England prep champ, and we went down and we played against the Mather and the famed John Wooden. And we, we also played against teams in California and Chicago. And I, I played well. I was the leading scorer in a tournament. I was the MVP. And he didn't won the free throw championship, but we had a contest. I made 24 out of 25 free throws. So I didn't lack confidence. And uh, that really, you know, helped me take it to the next level. And I'm always trying to take it to the next level, you know. That's what players do. They set goals for themselves. You know, along the way, I played with a lot of great players. And the recruiting process for you, Ernie, coming out of uh, New England prep rank, uh, you spent that year of, uh, P as a PG. About 250 schools were looking for your services, but I guess it really was uh, the ultimate no-brainer for you in terms of the decision-making process. You wanted to stay close to home. You wanted to stay close to your family and give them the opportunity to see you play on a regular basis. Yeah, in Providence College in those days, there was no ESPN. So you didn't have, you know, 50 games on different stations. So I had uh, the opportunity to watch um, one of the local stations before they had cable, uh, WJAR-TV, Jimmy Walker play for Providence College and, you know, go to some games at Alumni Hall and really felt the unbelievable uh, magnitude of, the following of Providence College basketball. And I definitely wanted to be part of that, be part of their tradition. And like you said, I wanted my family to get the opportunity to watch me play, and I wanted to play in front of them. So I never went on a recruiting trip. I, I didn't have any interest because this is where I wanted to be, and uh, that's where I went. <laughs> that's where you went, and uh, the rest is history. We're going to talk about uh, that history and, and what it meant for you to make that decision to come to uh, Providence College. And uh, at that time, uh, the eligibility was still uh, for three years at the varsity level. You came to the, uh, the varsity team as a sophomore and a uh, team that went to 20 and eight as a sophomore. Highlight of that season uh, was the game where you matched up against UMass and uh, they had a guy named Julius Irving. And what do you remember about that game, Ernie? I remember a lot. I remember, uh, <clears throat> that was one of the biggest confidence builders, you know, growing up for me because I ended up as a sophomore with 33 points and Julius Irving had 19. 
And the only reason he had 19 is they had him playing out of position. They had him under the basket as a center, so he never had a chance to, you know, run and fly, you know, with those dunks in the NBA and the ABA. Dr. J couldn't be Dr. J, so uh, that was a, a huge game for me, and it really built my confidence up because I said to myself, you know, if I could score 33 points against a Julius Irving team and outscore him, I can definitely reach my goal, which is to be a professional player. So players do that. They, they take, you know, great performances and they stash it away in their memory and builds their confidence more. And, and that's how you get to improve because if you just go out and play a great basketball game and you think you want to, you know, drive around with the new, you know, Corvettes and, you know, be with all the women and, you know, eat and go out and eat and go to the parties, that thing doesn't last too long. There's a million players that take that route. So, you know, I was driven, like you said, and uh, that was a big step for me mentally to feel good about myself and, and and solidify all the things I was thinking. That season finished in the NIT and uh, a year behind you uh, was the big man that uh, you would uh, be linked with and still linked with in, in the annals of college basketball for all you accomplished. And that was Marvin Barnes. And you were from the north side of Providence. Marvin was from the south side of Providence, uh, era of a lot of racial tension in Providence and really across America at that time, late 60s, early 70s. What do you remember about your first meeting with Marvin Barnes and how you guys first got together? Yeah, it was uh, my first day I attended class as a freshman at Providence. You know, I went to my classes and uh, after class, uh, one of the ball boys came up to me and said, Coach Gavitt wants to see you in his office after class. And I said, okay, my last class, I had an 8.30, a 9.30, and a 10.30. I said, I'll be there at 11.30. I go into his office and he says, Ernie D. There's this kid in South Providence. His name is Marvin Bonds. He likes to play the game like you do. I think he should go see if he wants to play with you and the guys because we play pickup games in Alumni Hall every day. And uh, he's, a, he's a heck of a player. So I said, okay, <clears throat> tell him that I'll come by tomorrow. And if he wants to play, I'll pick him up after class after he gets out of school at 2.30 or 3 o'clock. I went by and picked him up in my uh, green Corvette, and he was a big, lanky guy with long arms. He was like a giraffe, but a funny guy, a really funny guy. And he, he drove over with me, and we played pickup games, and we never lost all afternoon. He was a unbelievable talent because he could block shots, he could rebound, he could run, and he was very unselfish, so he was the perfect teammate. And with you guys uh, now in tandem, uh, the Friars would uh, take off and, and ascend uh, to uh, the heights that they had never attained in the history of the program. And you mentioned the Jimmy Walker years and, and uh, from, a, from a decade before. But with uh, you and Marvin combining, Providence had something that it didn't have in that time of Jimmy Walker. Not only a great team in Providence, but a team that featured two Local guys, two Providence guys on the Providence College Friars, really a perfect storm for you, and uh, no, not surprising the popularity of the team and uh, the way that, uh, that you guys were, uh, were certainly revered uh, by you know, the basketball fans of the area. 
And you know, Bernie, what was really unique and, and, and like a perfect storm was they just had finished a brand new arena in downtown Providence Civic called Center. the Civic Center. Mm-hmm. And it held like, like 11,600 people. And we used to sell it out every night. No matter who we played, they would be standing room only and uh, we would put a show on and uh, we had a great, uh, great chemistry and a terrific coach in Dave Gavitt, uh, who just let us run and play basketball. So we played that up and down, you know, I think that year we six or seven times we scored over a hundred points and we, Marvin would rebound, pitch it to me and I was a pretty good passer and Kevin Stanker would get out in the wing and run. So we had a, a perfect chemistry. And Civic Center opening in 1972. And as you alluded to, arguably the house that Ernie and Marvin built and uh, the sellout crowds that really brought the city together from north to south in every neighborhood of Providence and uh, for the entire surrounding area. And uh, also interesting to note, the first New England team that played all their games in a downtown arena and had uh, a focal point for the program as you did at the Civic Center uh, second year, your second year, the first year that you get to play with Marvin, uh, 21 and 6, 1971-72, and uh, a couple of uh, games, a big feature game from uh, that era. See what you remember about this one. Traveling out to the uh, legendary LA Sports Arena and uh, knocking off a number seven Southern Cal team. That was one that certainly got national attention for the Friar program. Yeah, it was a big game because it was on national TV, and you know every kid knows. In those days, if you were going to make a name, you had to do it when it was on national TV. And uh, we played against a really great player in Paul Westfall who went on and played for the, right. for the Celtics and, and, you know, the, the Phoenix Suns. And he's a good friend of mine. So, you know, we had to hang in there to beat him. But we beat him by a couple of points. And uh, that really uh, put a Providence College on a national stage. They were always, you know, great teams. And in the old days, the NIT sometimes was bigger when they had, you know, Ray Flynn and Johnny Egan and Letty Wilkins. That was bigger than the NCAA. Once the NCAA started picking up ground and and became the number one tournament, that's when we took that team to the national level. And uh, that was pretty exciting, I'll tell you. Big win that year, and uh, unfortunately, uh, the season came to a uh, crushing end in the NCAA tournament. You lost to Penn. Penn was uh, a powerhouse at that time, and uh, they got a guy roaming the sidelines that went on to uh, a bit of recognition of his own. Chuck Daly was the Penn Quaker coach then, if you remember, Ernie. Yeah, Chuck, you know, they took the bad boys with Isaiah Thomas and Mark O'Guire and those guys to the uh, NBA World Champions a couple of times. Yeah, they had good teams. I mean, they had big, strong players, and they kicked out rear end that that uh, that year. I remember. Uh, I remember Coach Gavitt said, you know, that they held Marvin and Chuck, you know, which was rare. But uh, sometimes it's good to lose because that then you work even harder. And once we lost like that, you know. When Marvin got on the team, we went from an NIT, NIT team to an NCAA team. So after that beating they gave us, you know, we had a chip on our shoulders and we worked really hard. And we knew that we were going to be getting Kevin Stakem on our team, a transfer from Holy Cross, 
six foot five guy who could really shoot and run. So I'll tell you, it really, uh, you know, uh, added some firepower to our squad. And uh, your senior year, I'm, I'm sure that a day doesn't go by when you don't think of really a magic carpet ride for the Friars that year. We're talking about the 72-73 season and a team that went 27-4 and four, and not only winning, and of course winning is going to fill the Civic Center or whatever building you're playing in, whatever the sport is, whatever the venue, but Ernie, the mark of your teams and going back and, and doing the research and, and remember from the time that you played, but uh, being able to uh, take a look at the way the Friars played, the style of the Friars at the time, you didn't just win, you won with style. And uh, never won more than that uh, that senior year, all the way to the uh, to the final four. Yeah, you know, we started out and we knew we were good, and we come out of the box really strong. And then we get beaten once in this Utah Classic. We play uh, two nights in a row, one game against uh, South Carolina, and they were loaded. They had uh, this kid John Roach, who was a preseason All-American. American, this kid uh, Tom Riker. They had Alex English. They had a bunch of great players. But we, we beat them good. And then after that game, uh, we had to play Santa Clara. And we sort of, like, took them for granted and weren't really ready to play at all. Or we were tired or something because we ended up getting beat by six points. And I'll never forget, after the game on the, the flight back, uh, Coach Gavitt, wanted to see me in his office the next day and I knew I had missed a lot of shots and I should have probably passed the ball more so I thought he's going to chew me out and you know Gavitt became a genius in the game of basketball by creating the Big East and working with the NBA and he was honest as the day is long but he was brilliant and so when I go up to his office he, he says come in his office and he turns on a film projector, shuts the lights, and walks out of the office and puts the game on mm. and lets me watch about 10 or 15 minutes of the game, comes back in, shuts the light, turns the light back on, and says, I'll see you at practice uh, later on this afternoon. I said, okay, coach. Uh, and, and that showed that, you know, some coaches would sit there and, you know, pick, you know, pick out all your mistakes and say, you know, you could have did this better. You should never said a word. And he said more by not saying a word than if he actually said it to me. So Gavin had a way of knowing how to treat every player the way they're supposed to be treated, you know. And uh, he was unique. And the thing he did, and I tell people to this day, you'll never see it again, he just let us play basketball. We never called the play. He never, you know, we just – if it was a man-to-man, we played pick and roll. We took the fast break like the Celtics did in the old days with Russell and Kuzi and Havlicek and Sam and Casey Jones. And if it was a zone defense, we just split the zone and moved the ball. So, I mean, players love to play for coaches that aren't on your back. And uh, they let you be as great as you can be. So, uh, we were very lucky to have Gavin. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. He didn't say much, but uh... – so the story goes, he handed you the ball at the beginning of the year and said, the ball is yours and uh, allowed you to play free of thought and allowed you to be creative, allowed Ernie D to be Ernie D on the national stage. Yeah, and that's real because most coaches have egos 
And today, these guys get paid so much money that they want to control everything with nine assistants and analytics and films and this and that. You know, in the old days, you know, I remember Jimmy Walker used to tell me uh, he's going to get tape and they, oh, they would be in a train and there's like a, a box with some tape in it and uh, some gauze and a table and they tape you and that was the training room. Now you go into these places, they got hydraulic chambers, you can go in, you've got masseuses, you got that travel with teams. I mean, you know, the name of the game is still putting the ball in the basket. <laughs> Indeed, this was simple. And uh, one game you didn't mention, you, do you remember uh, that first night when you guys christened the Civic Center? What do you remember about that game? Uh, it was against uh, Fairfield. You had a pretty good night there to, uh, to christen the building. Yeah, I remember I had 37 points and we, we destroyed them. But I remember in the layup line, uh, Marvin was in back of me and I, I tapped him. I said, Mills, look at this crowd. He said, can you believe these people? Because remember, we were used to playing in a sold-out alumni hall with 3,300 people. Mm-hmm. And now you're going from 33 to 11,000, a couple of hundred. You know, we played at <coughs> UCLA and they had big crowds. You know, we played in Madison Square Garden to big crowds, but uh, never in Providence, Rhode Island. So it was it was special. And mentioned, mentioned about the about that uh, you took the loss uh, in the uh, the Utah tournament uh, to Santa Clara. You reeled off seven in a row, and then you had another opportunity. You just mentioned on the big stage, you played at uh, the True uh, Shrine, the Cathedral of College Basketball, against the streaking UCLA team who had won 58 in a row at that point in counting. And uh, you got to play at Pauley Pavilion against Bill Walton's UCLA Bruins. I'm, I'm sure your memories are vivid of that particular game and playing on that stage. Oh, yeah. You know, when you're a kid, <clears throat> and all you hear about is UCLA. You watched Al Finder and then Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He became, you watched Gail Goodrich. You watched you know, all these great wall hazards. You know, you watch all the great, great NCAA champion teams. Didn't they win the NCAA championship 11 or 13 years in a row? So to get a chance to play them in their home gym, that again, I got to give Gavin a lot of credit because a lot of people pad their preseason games. You know, they'll play, you know. Non-conference. Yep. Yeah, non-conference. So they get those uh, wins and wins and, you know, wins, and they end up with 20 wins. Well, here we are going out to play UCLA at UCLA. And uh, believe it or not, for the first, you know, 30 minutes of the game, we're down by 11, 12 points. It was a game. But uh, Walton was absolutely spectacular. It was the first time I've ever seen anyone make Marvin Bonds look like a regular player. That's how good Walton was. And uh, they beat us. Uh, I had a, a good game. I got a standing ovation when I left. I had like 14 assists and 20-something points. But it was a great experience to build our confidence because there would be nowhere we would go after that that could ever match up with that kind of challenge. So I said to the media after the game, we will not lose another game this year. And we didn't until we lost in the NCAA tournament. I think we rattled off 16 straight wins. Six, 16 in a row, 14 in a row to end the regular season. 
had an opportunity to play at the end of the regular season in Madison Square Garden, beat St. John's. And then you were actually on the St. John's campus in the first round of the NCAA. And uh, you got a little payback against a uh, St. Joe's team that you had a, uh, a, a pretty intense Eastern rivalry with to win that first NCAA tournament game. Yeah, it was a good game. Believe it or not, the first half I couldn't hit the broad side of a barn door. I think I had like five points. <laughs> but I kept shooting and ended up with 30-something points. I think I got 27 in the second half. Uh, so that was big. And then we got a chance to play Penn again, right? Who just, you know, Payback. gave us a shellacking last year. And Marvin was spectacular. He remembers that after the, you know, his sophomore year, Gamble told the press that, you know, uh, they just took Marvin Bonds out of the game. Gavin was smart like that. He, he, he lit the fire under Marvin to work hard, you know, in the summer. And Marvin went out and shot 10 for 10, I think, from the floor. Which 10 for 10. Yep. An all-time record of not, you know, missing a, a field goal. So we beat them pretty good. So uh, now it's on to play Maryland for the Eastern Regional Championship. And if we win that game, we go to the Final Four. And the Maryland game is, uh, is one that, uh, well, it falls in the category. People still talking about it. You end up 103-89 victory. Lefty Dryzel was the Maryland coach. He was touting his team at the time as the UCLA of the East. And uh, you guys had three NBA, future NBA players in the game. Maryland had three future NBA players of the game with Lucas, uh, McMillan, and Elmore. A lot of talent on the court uh, in that, on that particular game in Charlotte, North Carolina, Ernie. Yeah, and it's funny you talk about that. You know, I was playing golf with my backcourt mate, Kevin Stakem, today. We were riding the same cart, and I somebody mentioned that game, and I said to him, in all the basketball games I've ever watched, played in, you know, listened to, seen on TV, I've never, ever seen one player get charged for five offensive fouls. And that's what they did with me. They followed me out with five. They were just falling down if I walked near them. And we were playing in Charlotte, North Carolina, right. know, which is the home of the, the uh, ACC hey, tournament over the there. The back on the road. So, yeah, and we were getting screwed, let me tell you. And, one, and again, I think with Gavin, it's really a shock. In, in the first half, I had four fouls, all offensive fouls, and we were ahead by a couple. And most coaches would sit, you know, somebody if they got three fouls. He plushed out of me in the second half, and I went for another six or seven minutes, and, you know, uh, they called another offensive foul. And I leave the game, and I ended up with, like, 30 points in 30 minutes. And I'm sitting on the bench, and all I'm saying is, God, please don't let us lose this game. I'm praying the whole way. And my teammates played the best they've ever played and blew Maryland out. So when we were going into that final four, after we beat Maryland, my teammates were playing with a whole bunch of confidence, and I was playing with confidence. So we were ready to uh, challenge UCLA again if we could get by Memphis State. Well, no less than the voice of American sports at the time, Kurt Gowdy, his comment calling that Maryland game, he said the first half was the greatest first half of college basketball that he had ever watched. You had 30 points in that first half, and as you mentioned, fouled out with 12 minutes left. But was, as you alluded to, Ernie, real defining moment for your Providence team as a team. You talked about Kevin yeah. Stakem, uh, Fran yeah. Costello, and, and uh, Nehru King 
saved his best for that game when it was really needed. Yes. Well, you know, uh, <clears throat> they came through. I mean, Maryland was pressing, and we were moving the ball. And when we got ahead at the end, we, uh, you know, got it to use the clock. The clock's our ally. And they were following, and they were putting us off the line, and we were making some free throws. But, uh, you know, the, the key was that Kevin and Fran Costello went in the backcourt, and they handled the pressure. And, you know, Marvin would come up and present himself, and, and they broke the press, and it was, uh, you know, a great, great display of uh, uh, gamesmanship and determination and will, and uh, they didn't crack under pressure. So that was huge. And then it was on to St. Louis and an opportunity yep. to play in the Final Four and uncharted territory, unprecedented, unprecedented heights for the Friar program to climb. You get Memphis State, uh, a team that had some great big men uh, under uh, Hall of Fame coach Gene Bardo. You go out and, uh, well, you know, you could probably tell the story better than me about how it started and uh, just uh, the twist of fate that, uh, that really – uh, turned out to be a crushing blow for you and Friar Fortunes in the second half. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> when we um, got there, the good thing was we were always in the top 10. They had the Associated Press and the UPI every week. It would come out on a Monday. And, of course, UCLA would be one and this team would be two. But PC would always be in the top 10. And when you get your team in the top 10, that's a hell of a feeling every single week you go to practice because you know you're legit. This wasn't like, you know, just some, you know, pie-in-the-sky dream. So we go out and play Memphis, and we're playing on whatever kinds of confidence because, like I said, my teammates had played magnificent against Maryland, and now they got me back, and we're running the ball down their throat. We're up by 16 points. Marvin goes up for a rebound. And remember, Marvin averaged 19 rebounds a game. That's how great he was. And now he steps on this guy, Ronnie Robinson's foot, and twists his knee. And he's never been hurt before, but his knee locked up on him. So he had to come out of the game. And when he came out of the game, you know, it was in the first half. We still were ahead, but we, we, we couldn't – we lost our – our, our staple point, which is the fast break. Because if you can't rebound, you can't get out and run. And, you know, he was our rebounder. He was average 20 rebounds a game. So they started banging the boards in the second half. Marvin tried to come back. He couldn't play. Gavin took him out. And they just, you know, kept getting one, two, three shots when they missed, finally getting it in. Whereas, you know, when they we couldn't rebound when, when they missed. They would get the offensive rebound. So, you know, our whole game had to change. I tried to put the whole load on my back and ended up with 36 points, but I didn't shoot it good enough to win it. And uh, we got beat. But, you know, if if he doesn't get hurt, I'm mm. telling you, there's no way that team beats us. We would have blew him up by 25 points. We were we were putting a show on, I'm telling you. You see, get the film of that game. Oh, the yeah. First I watched it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. We were getting layups after layups after layups after layups. That was huge. It was the Rhode Island version of Showtime about a decade earlier. <laughs> yeah, yep. and it was fun. There were no plays called that. It was just run and gun. 
mm. and getting layups or 10-foot jumpers on the, on the wings. Well, there's a signature play in that game. And, and once again, I've, I've used this phrase a couple of times here, but it's, it's apropos again that people are still talking about. You talk about something to, for the younger generation, I guess, maybe in particular to check out uh, if they go to YouTube. Uh, it's known as the pass. And uh, you certainly had, uh, you had a, an intricate uh, repertoire of angles and deliveries and uh, ways to get the ball to the open man, to hit the cutter, to get the ball underneath the Marvin Barnes. But uh, just to, to tell us about, I guess, the ultimate behind-the-back pass, which was from half-court to Kevin Stakem, that uh, is, is in all the highlight reels. And when Sports Illustrator was evaluating all-time uh, Final Four, they put that in the all-time Final Four plays, uh, the play that you made there to Kevin Stakem. Yeah, uh... You know, the good thing was that someone put it on uh, uh, YouTube and it got uh, one of those things and it got 2.7 million hits today. So it's, a lot of people like it. It, it. it was a rebound that was pitched to me. And when I got it, right before I caught the ball, I could see Kevin was ahead of the pack and cutting on an angle. So as soon as I got the rebound, I was dribbling with my right hand and I could see there was a defender right in front of me, so I couldn't just throw him the ball straight, Kevin the ball. So the only way I could do it is flip it behind my back because the defender wasn't in front of me on that angle. So I did, and I threw it like three quarters of the length of the court and hit Kevin in stride. And the thing that I remember most about it was when I did it, the 19,000 people in the St. Louis Checker Dome just like went, they sucked the air out of the, the the room. Everybody was just quiet. Like they were, they didn't know what the hell they were seeing. And then when he caught it they, and laid it in, he almost messed it up. He started fumbling it, but he, he got control and laid it in. The place went crazy. So that was a pretty unique situation, you know, to make that pass. And again, I give a lot of the credit to my coach because most coaches would say, you don't want to make that pass. What happens if it doesn't go through? He never once ever Question. told me not to make a pass. Mm. And Red Auerbach was the same thing. Red used to tell me, Ernie D, I don't care if you bounce the ball off your head as long as you get it <laughs> to someone. Those are the guys you like to play for because those are the guys who let you be creative and, and instinctive. And I think that's what's missing from the game today. You know, it's too you know, it's too choreographed. Everybody knows they're just going to run around the three-point line and pass it and shoot three-point shots. All that driving and creating and drawing and dishing and layups and 15-foot John Havlicek bank shots, that's missing in the game today. You know, I was a big David Letterman fan, Ernie, and, uh, and of course, he was an Indiana guy, and he used to occasionally he'd work basketball into his monologue, and I, I can't remember which Olympics it was, but uh, one of the lines in his monologue one night is he said to, you know, his sidekick, Paul Schaefer, he says, hey, Paul, I hear there's a new demonstration sport in the Olympics. That, you know, it's called team basketball. <laughs> it just all started. It just disappeared, Ernie. It really did. It's disappeared when you look at the game oh. today. Because yeah, you can just shoot a three-pointer and you can make three points. Yep. All these analytic guys say that if you keep shooting threes, it's better than taking layups. But <laughs> see, they fail to miss one important thing. I don't care what sport you play, it all comes down to confidence. 
And if somebody makes a layup and makes a five-foot jumper, I guarantee their confidence is going to be up rather than shooting a 30-footer with a hand in their face. But they shoot him. That Stefan Curry can shoot like a maniac. Huh? What a shooter he is. Unbelievable. The uh, absolute uh, mm. elite. And, uh, and nobody picked him when he came out of college. Yeah. He'd be a great player either. The, absolutely. I think he had it. Absolutely, yeah. another another guy that uh, had to uh, prove uh, all the uh, all the skeptics uh, from what their opinions were, show what their opinions meant. There's one other story yeah. be- before before we move on from your Providence career. You wrapped up your senior year. You averaged 24.5 points, ECAC Player of the Year, the NCAA East Regional Most Outstanding Player, the Lapchick Award as uh, the outstanding senior in college basketball. All those accolades, three times an All American. But there's one story I'd be remiss, and I'd, I would love to have you recount. Uh, you came from North Providence, Marvin Barnes from South Providence, and uh, there was always, uh, you know, once again, as you said, uh, you were always proving the critics wrong and uh, taking the skeptics to task. Just to tell us, I, I found out about uh, an opportunity where Marvin took you down to his turf and had an opportunity to play with the guys sure. in his neighborhood. And I just thought that was a great story, and I'd love to have you recount that. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of people, especially Marvin's friends, didn't think I was real, you know, like I was that good. And they wanted an opportunity to play against me. So Marvin told me, and I said, yeah, let's go. Take me down to where they play, and we'll play. And we did. You know, I went over to the dorm, picked him up. We drove out of South Providence and we went and played and uh, when, when I got finished they realized that I was as good as they were saying they thought that I couldn't play so I proved them wrong <laughs> absolutely and it proved them wrong indeed and then uh, once again uh, it was uh, an opportunity uh, to go uh, on to uh, the pros but uh, there was a very important very significant stop in between and that was the opportunity to uh, to put the uh, the USA jersey on, uh, represent your country, and uh, that proved to be a huge turning point uh, as you were making the transition to pro basketball. The ABA was around at the time. The Kentucky Colonels were chasing you, and uh, you had a chance to uh, to play with an elite team uh, in an exhibition series uh, against uh, the Russians. Uh, first time the U.S. had a chance to compete against the Russians since the debacle of the uh, 72 Olympics, and I know that was a signature moment in your career. Yeah, because ironically, the coach was Bob Cousy. And Cousy always told people that, you know, they always ask Cousy, who does he think plays similar to him? And Cousy always would say, you know, all the great point guards have their own style about them, except in one case. He says, Ernie D. Ernie D sees the floor like I do, and, you know, he has that knack of getting the ball to the player at the right time. So when he became the coach, I get a call from my lawyer and says, you know, they want you to play in this uh, six-game Russian series. Are you interested? I said, what do you think? And he said, well, if you're playing well, it'll really help your stock. I said, well, sign me up. So I went down to L.A. and worked out for uh, a week in, in the forum, the fabulous forum, with uh, Walton and uh, Sven Nader and, uh, you know, a bunch of guys. And uh, it was a great series for me. The first game, 
we played in L.A., and I would throw passes to Walton, and he would catch it like a Nerf ball and a Nerf basket and just drop it in. And then the Russians started going underneath his knees, and he didn't last one game. After the first game, he resigned because they were going to kill him. And it was a really rough and brutal series, but, you know, we won four games, and the really top part of the series was we played in in Madison Square Garden, you know, in the second or last game. And, uh, you know, it was on national TV. And Marvin had joined the team because one of the players got hurt. And him and I went on to score. Like, I had 27. He had 25. And Little Providence College had two guys on national TV, you know, beating the Russians. So it was a, it was a heck of a series. I enjoyed it. And for you personally, I know it's been quoted that that might have been a million-dollar series for you in terms of your stock rising for pro basketball. It was very, very well-timed. And uh, one particular uh, play uh, has lived on YouTube, mentioned about the past, and uh, that uh, dazzling dribbling display where you, you basically took the Russian team and th they almost looked like that they were pylons out there. <laughs> yeah, I was dribbling. One Russian came at me. I went behind my back, and then I zigzagged. Another one came, and I went behind my back, and I threw it to mom, and he dunked it. That game was huge. But, you know, Bernie, a million dollars today, these guys are making $36 million a year. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's unbelievable. Yep. You wonder why they went back to play again, right? That's Absolutely. a lot of money to leave on the table. Let me tell you something. Absolutely. No, no question about that. Before we move on to the draft here, I'm just going to take, if this was the, the old NBA, take a 20-second timeout. Ernie, we try to keep – uh, my credo here, one of the, the things we aspire to is to try to make the guests feel as at home as possible. So I just want you to know uh, you, you're on the phone with us, but I do have Andy, the producer, can document. I have my Dooms Club from Narragansett golf shirt on today. I want you to know that. <laughs> All so right. Been, it's a little foggy down here today, but it's yep. been a pretty nice summer. It's been pretty uh, warm and Not, big crowds. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting down there. I've been a guest of the Donatelli family at the Dunes Club. So they, they set me up with the, uh, the Dunes Club logo there from Narragansett. So uh, I've got that. And uh, also, uh, I don't know if you remember the Providence Steamrollers. And uh, yep, the, totally. Providence, the Providence Steamrollers from the, uh, the NFL, 1925 yep. to 1931. And they actually yep. won the I NFL championship. Yep, in 1928. So... That was my effort yeah. to make you make you feel at home. Uh, you, I don't worry, I'm very comfortable. <laughs> okay, that's good. You're, you're you're off the links. There's no pressure. You kick back, and uh, yeah. now opportunity to uh, to talk about uh, your, your transition uh, to the NBA. And uh, you know, yep. once again, uh, you know, six foot guy, and uh, he attained All American status, and uh, he got uh, highlight reel opportunity at the Final Four international competition. And that all translated into you being the number three pick of the 1973 NBA draft. Doug Collins was, was picked first. Jim Brewer, you were taken third. What, what do you remember about uh, the, uh, the opportunity that presented itself and where you were? Not quite like it is today where it's a big ceremony and they've got cameras on, but where were you and what do you remember about uh, finding out that you were the number three selection first round for the Buffalo Braves, who had a recent expansion addition to the NBA? I was out in Los Angeles practicing with the USA team in the forum, 
and we were going through some fast break drills, and I remember a reporter said, uh, do you know that you've been just drafted by the Buffalo Braves as the third pick? I said, no, but that's pretty good. And the next thing I knew, you know, the coach, Jack Ramsey, had flown out the next day to have breakfast with me, and we talked and looked forward to going to Buffalo when this was over, signing my contract. You know, I was negotiating with Buffalo and Kentucky of the ABA, and finally I signed with Buffalo. And, uh, you know, I remember uh, doing some clinics and playing some rookie games for Buffalo, which was a lot of fun. But I still go back to Buffalo a lot. What a sports town. I, I love the people of Buffalo. Yeah, yeah. I love Buffalo. It's like my second home. Really? That was, that was another question yeah. that I – yeah, it was I, I, about how comfortable you were. Uh, similarities, you know, a real blue-collar place in Buffalo and, and a real blue-collar team. I mean, uh, they had uh, attendance that was uh, much more for uh, the working class uh, that went to the games. It was family-friendly with the prices. And uh, you played in the old odd. You had a chance to play in the odd, actually, against uh, Canisius. What, what about the atmosphere of playing in that, uh, in that old barn on a regular basis? I love the old arenas. I used to love Chicago Stadium. I used to love the old Boston Gardens. I loved the odd because it was old. But uh, it was, you know, Red Auerbach used to always tell me there's a big difference between a building that was built as a hockey arena and one as a basketball court. And uh, the odd, for some reason, they played hockey. They the Sabres did. But it seemed like the background, it seemed like the people were right on top of you. And, and players loved to shoot in that kind of a background. So uh, I love playing the odd. They knocked it down now. It's no longer there. But uh, right. I had some great memories. You know, I had some great teammates. Jimmy McMillan was a good friend of mine. McAdoo, I still talk to today. He was a great scoring champion helped me, you know, get a lot of assists, and I helped him get easy shots. I had Randy Smith, who passed away, but he could run like a deer and was a great teammate. You know, I had uh, McMillan, Garfield Hurd. I'd see him at some autograph shows and stuff. So Jack Marin was a, you know, great shooter. So I had some great teammates. And as far as the coach, uh, you know, once again, you had All-American. You, you obviously spoke glowing terms, not surprisingly – about Dave Gavitt and how he managed, how he handled you, and or how he allowed you to, to be yourself. Jack Ramsey, Hall of Fame coach. Your memories about Jack Ramsey? I, I know that you had to, uh, as the story went, you had to earn your position, and I think you did that pretty convincingly in an inter-squad game early on. Yeah, he had asked me, um, you know, he said to me uh, when we had breakfast, you know, I can't give you the job. You have to earn it. So we had an uh, exhibition game where, the rookies, you know, played against the veterans. And I had like 30-something points and 14 assists. And after that game, I earned the job and I became the starting point guard. You know, I, I, Ramsey became a good friend of mine. We had our differences sometimes, you know, during the years I was there. But uh, he was a great guy, a great coach, and uh, I had a lot of respect for him. I think in every – athlete's life, you know, you go through good times and bad times. Uh, I think that's what life's all about. It's how you handle them. And, you know, as you look back and you get older, you wish you would have did this and you could have did that. And everybody wished they did that. But uh, I don't have any regrets. I'm, I, you know, I'm still talking to you and I'm 69 years old about basketball and I feel pretty healthy and played golf today and I got a beautiful family. So I'm very fortunate. Yeah, in, indeed, and and that uh, 
that season. And once again, if there was anybody that doubted, you were the NBA Rookie of the Year in 1974, the assist leader, yep. led in free yep. throw percentage, had uh, a remarkable yep. 25 assist game, which was a rookie record. He averaged over 15 points. On the road. On, on the road. That's right, no less. Averaged over 15 yep. points and eight rebounds. Uh, huge impact. And uh, with a, a franchise that started in 1970, you were part of the first yep. playoff appearance for the Braves that year. There was Braves yeah. fever in Buffalo. Yeah, the year before they were 20 and uh, 61, 21 and 61. The yep. year I was there was 41 and 41. And, and, and to get to that point, I'll tell you a great story. There was a guy in North Providence, you know, uh, about 45-year-old guy one day. I seen him walking. And, like, after I had my rookie year and led the league in assists and free throws and won rookie of the year, he came up to me and he said, Ernie D., the only skeptics that remain are the true skeptics. <laughs> <laughs> so, everybody else. So, yeah. 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 You, you convinced everybody else. And, uh, and uh, yeah. no, 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 no. the true skeptics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Just the true skeptics that no one else remained. And uh, not only do you get to the playoffs, but your opponent in the playoffs, you get to play a series against the Celtics. And uh, I know there was a clip uh, that, uh, that I, I saw with Johnny Most and uh, the legendary Johnny Most that we all listened to growing up. And uh, he yeah. said, at the beginning of that series, he said, it's the first playoff game for the Buffalo Braves, and it's the 222nd yeah. playoff game for the Boston Celtics. But you took the yeah. Celtics to task with your club and your quarterback and your team yeah. as the side in that series. What do you remember about that series, Ernie? Well, it was a great series. I mean, McAdee used to light up Collins because Collins didn't like to leave the basket. Then Collins was a bull inside, like a bull in a china shop with that jump hook. Havlicek was, you know, brilliant John Havlicek. And uh, we took him six games. We we had him 2-2 two, two, two coming back to Buffalo, and they beat us in Buffalo. It was crazy. We won one, they won one. Uh, but um, I remember after that series, after they did this in Buffalo, Havlicek came in the locker room looking for me to shake my hand and tell me what a great year I had. And I said to myself, what a classy guy. I mean, he didn't have to do that. And as when I played for the Celtics, he became a good friend of mine. The guy was like first class. Collins was a gentleman. You know, I got along with... Uh, Silas was a great guy. They had some Don Chaney. They had some great players who really knew how to. I remember the Celtics being the best team as far as moving a ball with Don Nelson and, you know, uh, Chaney. Havlicek used to tell me if I had a team that had three scores and two people doing the defense and rebounding, and that's what they had. They had Chaney and Silas doing all the defense and rebounding. And they had Havlicek, Collins, and JoJo White doing the scoring. So I learned a lot from Havlicek when I played with Boston. But we played them two two years in a row, and we had some great, great games against them. Yeah, great, uh, great rivalry. And uh, that uh, game six, uh, the finish, not without controversy. You remember the call, uh, McAdoo, the, yep. the, 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 the foul that was called at the end there. And uh, – uh, Jack Ramsey, I don't think he ever got over that call. It was that was a tough one to take with uh, with what turned out to be no time left on the clock with JoJo White sinking the free throw. Yeah, usually you don't let the game be decided. 
you know, with no time left to call the foul. You let them go in overtime. So I don't blame them for being mad. That was a tough way to lose. Indeed. Great. You had a great series, though, the first game when you had uh, the 20-point uh, the uh, fourth quarter. And uh, once again, uh, a bit of a rivalry uh, was brewing between Boston and Buffalo. And uh, the, the, uh, the following year, uh, you won your first playoff series and uh, defeated uh, and, and ended up for uh, the, uh, the, number, the number three, excuse me, the, uh, in 75-76, you won your first playoff series, defeating the 76ers. They had the miniseries then. And uh, then uh, yep. took it back to uh, to play the Celtics uh, that year, but that seventy five seventy six season, Ernie, uh, not without controversy. It was it was almost uh, team turmoil in in Buffalo. Your your memories about that year was a difficult year where the the team overcame a lot to get all the way back to get to the playoffs to uh, advance in the playoffs and uh, eventually lose again to the NBA champion Celtics. Yeah. Well. Like I said, everything can't be hunky-dory. And when, when you're an athlete and, and you want to play and the coach sits you on a bench, very few athletes will say, okay, I'll go to the bench. And, and nowadays, they pay these people $30 million. They don't care. You know, they cut them and then they give them half that money and then they go sign somewhere else. But in those days, you know, it wasn't like that. So, you know, I had my uh, – beefs with Ramsey and stuff like that. But uh, in the end, we became good friends. And uh, right until he passed away, I used to, to call him up. And uh, we, we got along really good. And uh, he's a guy I always respect. And uh, I appreciate him being in my life. I, I know looking back on that playoff series, you know, once again, you extended the Celtics to six games. And Jack Ramsey might have had other ideas about playing time and your playing time. But it seemed as that series went on, you had a more prominent role in, in, in keeping the Braves in that series. It was kind of you, you know, Ernie D rose to the top and, uh, and had, had the opportunity that maybe you didn't have going into that series and going into that playoff run. Well, it's funny because, you know, Kuzi was doing the uh, radio announcement, TV announcement for uh, the Celtics, and I, I, I went up to him and I said, hey, coach, if you were me, what would you do to get more playing time? And he said to me, Ernie, he says, if I was you, when I got in a game, I'd pick up my man the whole length of the court, 96 feet. And that's what I did. And when I did that, everybody did that and started changing the games. Like a couple of games, two of those games were down by 16, 18 points. And when they put me in, we cut the, the lead to like two, four points were right there. And then finally in that series, I ended up starting, you know, right at the end. And uh, it was satisfying. And you know, it cost Ramsey his job because at the end of that year, the owner felt that if I could do that in the playoffs, why wasn't I playing all year long? Because mm. they had money invested in me. But uh, like I said, sports is not easy. You're dealing with a lot of egos. You're dealing with a lot of, you know, great players and everybody wants minutes and everybody was a star in college and, you know, in the pros and no one wants to give away, you know, their piece of the pie. So, that's what made the Celtics so special. You know, Ironback had a way of building a team, whole team atmosphere where people were unselfish and just given to the team. I remember Red used to say, I don't want anybody coming in my office with statistics trying to negotiate. He was cheap, too. He didn't want to pay anybody. Right, but right. He, he definitely didn't want to see somebody's statistics and stuff. So... They played unselfish. We had the scoring machine in McAdoo. 
Smith was a great scorer and McMillan could score. So we had a lot of firepower. And uh, if they would have kept that team in Buffalo, mm. that team eventually was sold to the L.A. Clippers. And I know L.A. is a huge market. And Steve, you know, uh, Bomber bought it from Microsoft for like, I think, $2.2 billion. So when the owner of the Braves sold that team in Buffalo, you know, to the Celtics, they ended up swapping franchises. I think they only sold us for like, you know, uh, $20, 30000000 million, if that, not even. Now they're mm-hmm. talking about $2.something billion. So it's crazy. Sports is like the money in sports today is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just the way that that's it just skyrocketed uh, value exponentially. And uh, yep. well, this seems to be when I when I talk to uh, to athletes of a certain age here and, and some on the games people play here and uh, our, the early uh, history of our program, injuries, different, absolutely different uh, scenario, uh, injuries in the 70s as opposed to now because of what medical science has done for sports injuries. And you really fall into that category, Ernie. You suffered a knee injury, cartilage injury, 1974-75. And uh, as I've talked to many athletes over the years, it was before the arthroscope. And just to recount a rather painful uh, moment in your, in your career, a signature moment in your career, when you suffered that, uh, that first uh, knee injury in Buffalo, your second season. Yeah, well, you know, like you said, there wasn't no arthroscopic surgery, but the thing is, I came back and scored 36 points after I was injured. So it wasn't like I didn't have career highs, in, you know, until after. But that's the game. That's life. You know, one day you're doing good. The next day, things don't go. One day, people are healthy. The next day, they're not healthy. We're all living that life. And, you know, like I said, to be able to have a family and, 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 and provide for my family and everybody be healthy and uh, you know, I'm a lucky guy. I mean, sports mean a lot, but they don't mean when it comes to health. Health is the number one thing in life now, Bernie, as you get older. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I've mentioned that on the program with, with other guests, Ernie. I, I hope you're aware of the fact that there are three stages of life. And uh, I, right. I hope you know. I, 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 I hope well, you know. I got, I, don't worry. Is. I know. I know. <laughs> you know what it is? Youth, middle age, and you look good. Right. Well, the key is to keep keep active. Yes. So I walk it, it, 10 to 15 miles every single day. So wow. I, I stay active. I'm, I'm a mover. And, and, I don't stay still. With or without a basketball in your hand at this point. Probably still with a basketball without. in your hand from time to time. No. A basketball I, I was, I'll tell you one thing. If I had a basketball, it would be more fun. But I can go faster <laughs> without it. They really think I'm a nut if they see me walking with a basketball now. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the the next move in your career was uh, I thought was rather compelling. Uh, I know that uh, this particular guy is, is someone that you've you've mentioned in any of the research that I've done is a guy that was uh, an, an idol of yours, and uh, you had the opportunity to go to the Los Angeles Lakers, but the guy that was your idol that was uh, in a prominent role administration of the Lakers at the time. I don't know if you didn't know about it. You didn't sign off on it, but uh, it, it turned out to be uh, a star-crossed uh, trip, uh, a brief star-crossed trip to the Lakers, unfortunately, when you uh, took your uh, took the Ernie D. Act across country. Yeah, that's life in a big city, right? That's L.A. 
uh, you know, West, West, Jerry West, yeah. Me there. Jack Kent Cook called me up and said, Ernie D, we respect you as a player. I respect you, what you've done, how hard you work. We're really happy to have you as the Los Angeles Laker. I go to the press conference. I fly with my brother into LA. Bill Shaman picks me up at, at the airport. We get there. And the reporter comes up to me and he says, do you notice anything? I said, yeah, of course I notice. The coach ain't there. Well, what the hell am I going to do? I just have to go to camp and work hard and, you know, let the chips fall as they may. But I don't like your chances when the coach isn't there. That's a, that's a sign that he didn't sign off on it. But that's what happens. Like, in, if it happened today, they turn around and say, okay, we'll buy you out. We'll give you X amount of dollars, blah, blah, blah. But they didn't do that. In right. Right, that, that, yeah, exactly. Yep. It would have been a whole different the way they would have handled it. Right. And, uh, but that's yesterday's news, Bernie. No, in, in, indeed. Oh. And more, more importantly, <laughs> more importantly, Ernie, that you, which we can wrap in fish, as you know, yesterday's newspaper. But, uh, but more importantly, you had a chance uh, to come back. And uh, if, if you were going to finish, and unfortunately, it was cut way too short and way too early. But you did have an opportunity to put on that Celtic green, what was, what was that experience like? And, and what was your reaction when you knew you were going to have the opportunity to play for the Boston Celtics, the, the team that you grew up, just like I grew up listening to Johnny most with the transistor radio uh, as, as a kid growing up in Rhode Island. I'll tell you, when the Celtics used to have practice, they didn't have any video or anything. They played games of 11. The first team, Havlicek, Collins, Jojo White was out there, and they won. And I'm sitting on the bench waiting to get in, you know, the second game. So I get the, you know, they beat the second team, and they put me in there, and we're playing them a game of 11. And I'm standing next to Havlicek to throw the ball. You know, the referee's throwing the ball up in the air. Before he throws it up, Havlicek taps me on my side. He says, you better play good, or these Reds got a keen eye on you. And I said, mm. really? I look, I look over to the bench, and I'm back to sleeping, fast asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew how that was. <laughs> that was my experience with Boston. <laughs> well, well, you Sleep mentioned sleeping on a job. <laughs> sleep, red, red was red, red earned to sleep. You get all those rings, and uh, you light up a cigar, yeah. and occasionally you take a nap. He, was, he wasn't worried about Ernie D. I promise you. <laughs> but it was fun. Yeah. You know, I, I enjoyed being around Havlicek, and uh, you know. It was fun. I had a guaranteed contract, you know, after Boston with the Houston Rockets, and I chose not to play. So it wasn't like I couldn't play. I just had enough of it and didn't want to play anymore. Hmm. And, and yeah. the, the, the one game that we, that we got to talk about from the, uh, your brief tenure with the Celtics, you just mentioned him, an icon that we, we lost about a year ago, legend of the game, John Havlicek. Just uh, tell us the story about Havlicek's last game and, uh, and wh where you fit yeah. in as a supporting player in his last game. <laughs> yeah, I told uh, Bob Ryan, who's a friend of mine, I said, before the game, when I get in the game, all I'm going to do is throw the ball to Havlicek. He said, how the hell is he going to do that? I said, watch. So Havlicek was really struggling. He was like, he was a nervous wreck. He couldn't make a bucket. So finally, I get in the game, and I hit him on the wing. He hits a jumper. I hit him on the other wing. He hits a jumper. I hit him for a layup. And, you know, all of a sudden, he ends up at 27 points. And at the end of the game, I got a picture somebody gave to me in a ball. And he says, Ernie D, you know, one more pass, Ernie D. And I still got those pictures in that ball in my house. He was great. 
right there with one of your idols of your youth. It doesn't does not get any better than that. And uh, right. you, you, you mentioned about a chance to uh, to go to Houston, and and uh, you bypassed that. And uh, right. your, your your time, uh, you, you had really several uh, different uh, areas that you got involved with after playing. Uh, you do you did a little bit of coaching back at your old high school, and you kind of had the uh, the Jerry Tarkanian running and gun effect there. I, I heard North Providence went from scoring 50 a game to scoring 90 a game when Ernie D took over behind the bench there. Well, usually coaches coach the way they play. You know what I mean? Because they're Absolutely. effective that way. So I, I like to feel that if somebody gets out and runs and gets some layups, they get some confidence. It was fun. It was fun coaching. I, I did that for a while. And uh, now, I'm, now I'm a book writer and I'm a, a movie producer and uh, I'm an inventor. That's what I'm doing today. So I jump around all over the place. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you, and, and you spent uh, considerable. I know you really enjoyed your time at uh, Foxwoods uh, as, uh, as a celebrity yeah, host years. at Foxwoods. Yeah. For 18 years. You were- <laughs> that was a long run. 18 years. 18 years. Yeah, I had a good time. The yeah. Indians are very good to me and uh, it was a lot of fun. The key is, Bernie, keep staying alive and keep doing things you like to do and stay healthy, right? A- That's the absolutely. name of the game. A- absolutely. You replaced uh, Vinny Pazienza there and you didn't even have to fight him for the job. That was a, that was a plus. Yeah, well, I'll tell you a quick story about fighting. One time, Sugar Ray Leonard knew a friend of mine who was a boxing promoter. And he had him over his house, and he had a hookup. Sugar Ray thought he was a basketball player. So they didn't tell Sugar Ray who I was. And so the guy said, hey, you want to play uh, Ernie one-on-one? And uh, Sugar Ray thought he was pretty good. I had, We played the winners out. I was ahead 19 to nothing. And the game was 21. Now, Sugar Ray's getting a little embarrassed. We took a shot, and the ball bounced down the street, and we both ran after it. And we picked it up. He looked at me, and he said, after this, we'll do my sport. <laughs> and so I let him score about seven or eight points. <laughs> no, thank you. Not, put, not putting the gloves on and climbing in the ring. Yeah. Absolutely. That was uh, a good, 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 good decision. Good decision. Yeah, right. Thanks. Thanks. It, yeah, it, 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 indeed. You know, I, I got I to gotta ask uh, also uh, a question. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this because I had a chance to meet him a couple of times. You're talking to somebody who's a, an icon of the, the great ocean state of Rhode Island and of Providence. Any, uh, any stories about uh, the esteemed, uh, the, the, the late mayor, Buddy Cianci, that you can tell us? Uh, yeah, hey, Buddy was all right. I like Buddy. He, mm-hmm. One time he came to Foxwoods, and he, was, he had his own radio show. This was after he went to jail and came back. That's right. He was and a morning, he was, uh, morning host. Yep. Yeah, and he interviewed me. And uh, he started getting a little cocky. And he said, you know, I'd like to have a job like you guys. This is a hell of a job. This is a hell of a situation. I said, buddy, you do okay for yourself. (laughs) 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 He was a character, that guy. He was a character. He wasn't wasn't doing too bad himself. You're absolutely right about that. And uh, you mentioned about... uh, about what uh, keeps you busy today. It's a lot of, lot of things uh, today. Uh, you've got a yeah. uh, couple, of, couple of businesses that, uh, that you're involved with. Just to tell us a little bit, a uh, company, I think a, a tech yeah. company and a 360 yeah. is the name of the other company. I got, uh, I got a, a patent for a, 
wearable wristband and a basketball and all sports balls that I'm going to be coming out with a, a children's toy in the next month. I'm working with some people who have uh, contacts in China to get them made at a pretty fair price. And so that's one. And then I have three books. And one will be out in another two weeks. And, uh, and I have a movie I'm working on. So, oh, really? Okay. You know, I've been busy. I've been busy. Hmm. And, uh, you know, that's uh, obviously a lot to, uh, to keep, you, keep you busy and uh, to, get you, to get you up every morning and to be, and be excited and involved. Uh, I got to ask you also, greatest, uh, greatest NBA player in your estimation? Yeah. We, we, we yeah, talked I ever seen or ever played with the- Guy, guy that, uh, guy that you, yeah, guy that you played uh, you played against or you played either with or against in, in the NBA that we you'd say you put right at the top of the list. When Tiny Archibald, my first year I came into the league, he played for Kansas City Omaha with Kuzi as the coach. He was the leading scorer and leading assist guy. He was a bullet. Him and Calvin Murphy were great players. When I played, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was New Alcindor in Milwaukee. He was tough. So Rick Barry was tough. I played against a lot of Havlicek, you know, great players. They were all great. Mm. I might have been like 15 of them that were really, you know, the superstars of the league then. The, the, the guys that were uh, absolutely uh, at the top as, as the elite. Yeah. You, you, yeah. Mentioned, you mentioned about, uh, about Bob Ryan. And, uh, yeah. well, he, he had one of the supreme. I, I don't think it can get any higher. Higher praise indeed. He talked about Ella Fitzgerald was born to sing. Mikhail yeah. Parishnikov was born to dance. And Ernie D. Yeah. was born to play basketball. I don't, I don't know if you can top that, Ernie. <laughs> no, that, I love that one. That, that's one of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, Bob liked my game. There's no question about it. He, he, in fact, he wrote, I seen about a month ago, they said about Havlicek came into the game with the great Bob Cousy giving an assist. And his last assist was mm. by the great point guard Ernie D. So mm. to be mentioned in, 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 in the same breath with uh, Havlicek and Kuzi told me one time in an airport, there were only three guys in the league that knew before they got the ball what they would do with it. Of course, one of them was him. One of them was me. And who do you think the third one was? I'm going to say... Bob Cousy, I'm going to say the third one was probably Larry Bird. You're right. That's what he said. Larry All right. <laughs> Larry Bird. So. Hey, we should, we should end it on that one, Bird. You, you look like you know what you're doing. <laughs> well, That's I pretty got, good. I got to quote David Letterman again. As David Letterman used to say, they don't give these shows to chimps, you know? So there you go. <laughs> That's a good one. Right. Hey, thank but, you for having me. As far as we know. Ernie, it was great. It was great to have you. Any uh, – Final words of, I guess, for the younger kids out there, we got to tell them that you mentioned Jimmy Walker, that Jimmy Walker was yeah. Jalen Rose's father to the millennials out there when you talked about Jimmy yeah. Walker. I guess we had to mention that. But uh, yeah. you were also um, inducted uh, into the, uh, just a few months ago, your induction into the College Basketball Hall of Fame. Uh, your thoughts and yeah. memories in, in, in uh, having that opportunity and going out to Kansas City for that. That must have been great for you and and your family, for your kids and your grandkids now. Yeah, my little grandson got up and said, my name is Ryan C. I'm the grandson of the great Ernie D., who was rookie of the NBA. 
he said, take you, he dribbled the ball and take you to the basket. And the next thing you know, he puts you in the casket. I'm the great Ryan C. That was my grandson's rap. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah. For my grandkids and my kids to see that kind of stage and that kind of accolades, that was coming full circle. And that's probably one of the proudest days of my life. It, it, indeed. Well, you know, there was uh, a book written a number of years ago, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, talking about the, you know, the 10,000 hours of perfection, which would translate into uh, 10 years, about uh, 20 hours a week over a 10-year period. I'm sure you put that in and more, Ernie, to get to where you got uh-huh. to in terms of what you, the hours you invested. Would you say that's a fair statement, the hours you invested in basketball from the time you first picked it up uh, back uh, in uh, North Carolina? I played play- eight, 10 hours a day, every day for 20 years. Easy, yeah. Wow. But it was fun. Like I told you, it was fun. It wasn't like I had to go and there was never a time where I said, oh, I got to go practice again. I couldn't wait to go. It was fun. That's why I'm telling kids, if there's one word of advice I can give any young kid, pick something you love to do because you'll do it more. And the more you do it, the better you'll get and the more you'll enjoy it. Absolutely. Amen to that. Uh, final quote, William Roden from the New York Times talking about Ernie D. Gregorio. Few players in a short time established such an enduring legacy that grasped the essence of basketball and expressed it with a verve and flash unusual at a time when cool was in. And uh, we're very pleased that we had you in with us here today, Ernie, uh, on the games people play. You played it well with us today, just like you played it during your career. Thank you so much. Uh, we, uh, we want to hear about uh, the, the invention and the books and the film and uh, wish you all the best with that. And uh, hopefully we can, uh, we can help you uh, promote uh, all those initiatives here down the road for us. Thanks for joining us. Hey, I really appreciate it. When you come to Narragansett, give me a call. We'll go out and have a glass of wine on me. At, absolutely. I'm usually parked over in Jimmy Bennett's uh, driveway, so I'll take a walk across to the Dunes Club. All right. Look forward to it, my friend. Thanks for having me. Okay, thanks very much. That was Ernie DiGregorio. Boy, we had some fun with him here today on the Games People Play. And uh, we thank you for joining us uh, once again on uh, Episode 6. We're Season 1. We're just getting started here, folks, with the Games People Play with Bernie Corbett. I'm Bernie Corbett. Thank you once again uh, to the Fours, uh, America's greatest sports bar and restaurant right here on Canal Street in Boston. If you're in the area, please come in and uh, visit them. And uh, also uh, to our, our other supporters uh, with uh, Kirsten Kelly and uh, also to Phil Castanetti at Sports World. And uh, for everybody that uh, makes it possible for uh, the Seattle crew, our West Coast contingent for uh, Kiwan and Todd out there. And, uh, of course, my kudos to my executive producer, Andy Bernstein, who really makes it happen here uh, from the fours uh, with the games people play. So for my executive producer, Andy Bernstein, This is Bernie Corbett for the games people play. Play the game well. Look forward to being back with you real soon. Good afternoon.